0: Hey everybody, I'm Jason, your host of Let Freedom Reign, an equine industry leading podcast that talks to folks from all different walks of life, who share their testimony of adversities and perseverance, and how the horse has helped them through their journey. Stay tuned, we're going to have a great time. Come along for the ride. Welcome everybody to another week here at Let Freedom Reign podcast. Our guest this week is Carlos Macias the owner and leather maker at Buckaroo Gear. As with every weekly episode, there's always a takeaway or life lesson to be learned. And in this week, we talk about the why. Life will throw us many unexpected challenges, but understanding why, why you get up, why you fight, why you push through day in and day out in the face of adversity is where some of the greatest personal growth will take place. Not only will we learn a little history about Buckaroo Gear and the different types of products offered by Carlos, we will understand that why and what helped him push through one of the most difficult times in his life and not only be successful as a businessman but as a father for more information you can find him on facebook under buckaroo gear and lostbuckaroo.com you can find him on instagram under buckaroo gear and the websites lostbuckaroo.com and buckaroogear.com will point you in the right direction now should you find the content of this episode valuable please share it with a friend additionally Your five-star ratings and reviews on the podcast platforms of your choice would mean the world to us. You can find us on both Facebook and Instagram under Let Freedom Reign Podcast. We hate to keep y'all waiting any longer. Here is our conversation with the maker of Buckaroo Gear, Mr. Carlos Macias.
1: So what's new around the shop, the newest thing is my girlfriend of nine and a half years moved in. Hey. And uh, we were going to buy a place and uh, combined household. She and I have had our own separate households for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, I divorced back in, what, 2010. Was able to keep the place, kind of struggled through all that. You want to talk about struggles? That's probably what I'll talk about. Yeah. Um, and I've uh, been dating Kim for nine and a half years. Hopefully, I don't get that wrong. She'll be upset. Well, <laughs> she won't be upset, but... It's been a while. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, yeah. And uh she's she's had her own place, I've had my own place. We've been paying um obviously separate bills and uh, I've been holding out because I wanted to focus on being a dad and my daughter is now 11. And uh I thought it was very important especially uh well, we divorced when she was 2. I th- I just thought it was very important that I focus on her, so in other words, when I have her, it's just me and her, yeah. And uh,
0: I'll tell you what, we could uh, we could end up down a rabbit hole right now because uh, I'm a huge believer that a lot of our country's challenges can be fixed by the father. And I mean, you can yep. go down any number of avenues when you talk about that, but uh, and I've seen it yeah, with it just, many, it goes my, back to yeah. that
1: man thing, yeah, it goes back to that man thing, yeah. there it is, right there, yeah,
0: it's crazy because so many people. I've seen it, right? They want to make a great professional name for themselves and build a reputation, and then their household falls apart. And you have you have to find that balance. And for me personally, I've chosen to sacrifice the professional success to solidify uh, my role as a leader within within my household. That's just what I feel I need to do.
1: Yep, father, father first,
0: yeah. always. Every man yep. makes their own decisions for their own reasons, but uh, yep. I. You, not that you need my confirmation, right? But I totally commend that position of you pouring into your daughter, you know, and, and choosing that as a priority in your life and keeping it a mainstay.
1: Well, and, and that's, I mean, to go back even further, I was a computer guy. I worked for, uh, I don't, you might not even know, at the time it was called Stockman's Bank.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, they're based in Elk Grove. Their headquarters is in Elk Grove. Um, um, so... I was transitioning from being a uh, computer guy uh, to running the business. I, I ran the bank for five and a half years. I was a network administrator. It was a one-man show. The bank was bank was 80 employees with, uh, I think, four different branches plus the headquarters. So I was responsible for everything from changing keyboards out to fixing printers to answering to the FDIC when they came to do audits on our security, um, information, security, information, technology, security, all that stuff. Anyway. So my wife and I at the time were talking about starting a family and I had the business going and the business was, and this was at that high point during that 2005, 2006, 2007, when the market was crazy, the Californios was going, and i was basically working two full time jobs
0: yeah yeah with
1: buckaroo gear and with at the we were talking about starting a family we had the good job at the time uh with all the benefits and everything else and uh so i decided to take the leap i i um quit the bank wanted to pursue the business full time but not only that i i firmly believe that one of us needs to be home with the baby and that was me. So I was able to do both. She went to, Caitlin was born in October and, um, her mom, Heather went back to work before Christmas. Wow. So it's been, it's been me and Caitlin since she was, you know, not even two months old. Yeah. So yeah. that's, that's the, uh,
0: I was gonna say, what a challenging chapter. I mean, it's scary enough leaving the stability of, uh, of, um, 40-hour work week, right? That traditional paycheck shows up every other, you know, every other week or every month, whatever. Um, Exactly. But to leave that, to start a company, to have a brand new baby, I mean, uh, there's a lot going on right there in life for you.
1: Yeah, that was 2007. I started the business in 2000. So it it took, you know, it took that seven years to grow to the point where I had enough confidence Mm -hmm. and taking that leap. Mm -hmm. So...
0: Mm -hmm. So let's go back in your history. I want to talk about kind of how you got your start and, and what drove you to the point of stepping off and trying to, trying to do this leather thing as a, as a business. I mean, now, gosh, you're celebrating 20 years, uh, as a business, but it all started somewhere with, with that first idea. Let's go back to maybe what, what that idea was or, or what part of life you were in when you made that decision.
1: Well, a lot of it, uh, stems from, being raised in town and always wanting to be a cowboy. Mm-hmm. So I was raised in town. I ended up, uh, my first job was at a little horse place cleaning stalls. Um, I was 14. Uh, worked my way up from there, was through high school, had the ROP program, and uh, worked for a cutting horse trainer out here. There's a lot of cutting horse trainers out here. There's a lot of little barns, a lot of show horse people, grain cow horse people, cutting horse trainers. Um, working for him, his name was Ed Murphy, is Ed Murphy. He's in Texas somewhere now. Um, but he is from Nevada, from Tonopah, Nevada. And so he was a buckaroo, and he cowboyed on them big ranches growing up. And uh, so I kind of learned about, you know, there's all kinds of different cowboys. There's all kinds of different genres. They all come from different places. Um, there's a cowboy from, obviously, you know, there's rodeo cowboys, there's working ranch cowboys, there's Texas cowboys, there's buckaroos from yeah. the Great Basin. There's all kinds of that. So I learned about buckaroo stuff. I learned about the gear and fell in love with it. You know, my, my favorite pastime as a, as a high schooler was to open up the Capriola catalog and just, you know, drool over the bits and the spurs <laughs> and all the old yeah. timey stuff. Yeah. and And that's what I did. And this is long before any of the internet stuff. It was catalogs that, you know, if you wanted to look at good gear, you, you had to order catalog. Uh, so, uh, fast forward to just out of high school. I graduated high school and went to Montana state university, moved up there to Bozeman. Um, I was studying, um, animal science and, uh, I didn't really do a lot of studying. I probably got more of an education in beer and (laughs) beer and partying. In life. How about
0: that? In life.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, but I, I figured out that that was going to be, although it would have been a good job, but it was, it was pretty much setting me up to be a ranch manager is what it was doing. And if I wanted to ever own something, um, yeah, it was going to be tough. Because as a ranch manager, you generally work on somebody else's place. They own it. You just run it. And unless you're born into a family that has the land or the history in that, you're, you're not really going to own it. So um, after kind of flunking out of school, I came back to California, and uh, that was after a couple of years in Montana. But one of the things that really influenced me up there was while I was in Montana, I ended up working for a double diamond halter company. And that was a great job in Montana because it was warm. It was inside. It was a heated <laughs> it was a I love it. It was a heated building. And I so saw I was I was working for Pete Malniker, who's a friend of mine. We're still really good friends today. Um tying halters. Um and I and I got an even bigger appreciation of the uh of good quality gear and started learning through Pete about what it would take to run a business like that um, it's it's not just any business I mean you can put business in a cookie- cutter form but it's not just any business when you're running a business selling horse tack or manufacturing horse tack it's a different type of business so um, Pete through Pete um, when I'm tying halters we're listening to the radio um, in the, in the shop and uh, listening to Pete and he's got all kinds of <clears throat> he's got his way about doing things and so I learned a lot about about good quality gear and uh, he introduced me to uh, Buck Brannaman. and at the time not only was I working there I was working at a horse place starting colts and I was having trouble with a few colts and uh, so I learned about Buck Brannaman. he sent me home with you know uh, Braneman VHS tapes Some I don't material not even <laughs> Yeah, I don't even think we had a, a, v, a VCR at the time. I had to rent one from the local uh, video store. That's back when they had video stores. Yeah. And we had a little TV. I bought a little 13-inch TV at the pawn shop in Bozeman. And so we could sit there and watch um, these videos. I think I watched Bramman's Groundwork video a million times. Um, but it helped me out a lot. I had some horses. We we'd start Colts, but we also had horses that people would bring us trouble horses. And I had this mare that, uh, kept, had a problem flipping over. You put any pressure on her face, you just flip over on you. I was able to get through some of that stuff and learn about that. But, uh, so that's kind of when I fell in, fell in love. with I had, you know, I'd always wanted to do the horse thing and be the cowboy thing, but I started really getting passionate about the horsemanship and, fall in love with that, um, I kind of got silly about it, wanting to know all the intricacies and the. There's a lot to it, like and like we said, we were talking about earlier. I mean, it's not just about the horse; about it's about your inner self. I mean, it's pretty much one and the same.
0: It has Horseship. to be right because if you're not good between Human, the ears, humanship, horsemanship,
1: yeah. whatever you want to call it, yeah, you know absolutely. I mean? so. Um, so Fast forward, g- coming back, I said. I think I did say I moved back to California. I went to work for my dad for a little bit, you know, in the landscaping company, and I I foreman for him, installing backyards and sprinkler systems, landscape design, doing all that. I went back to school um, and started learning about computers, and I took a uh, I took a um, web design class learning basic HTML and that's where I decided I was going to start the first internet-based cowboy gear and horse tech um, store
0: which at the time was just unheard of
1: it was unheard of the big the big stores the the well-known stores like um, Brighton Feed and Saddlery and uh, of course Capriola's and Tips Tips Western Wearing and Saddlery and Winnemucca they were all there but there was nothing; they didn't have an internet presence at all. Um, that was at the time when shopping online was pretty much in its infancy. So that's uh, there's a lot there's a lot more details to it, but mm-hmm. that's how we got mm-hmm. that's how we got started with the uh, with Lost Buckaroo and Buckaroo Gear, the internet based um, horse tack business.
0: So I want to go back and, like, I want to expand on the draw of buckaroo gear, right? What was the attraction for you? Because like you talked about, right, there's so many different types of cowboys. And there's so many different industries, right, that that maybe favor a style of tack over another. But what for you was that real draw to the to the buckaroo kind of California style of, of tack and, and Western gear?
1: Well, I, I think number one, the fact that I'm, I'm from California and there's a, there's a rich history in California of, um, if you go back to the early mission days, the Spanish mission days and the beginnings of the Vaquero here in California or the California, whichever Mm -hmm. you want to call Mm it. Um, so having an appreciation for the history here and I'd be lying if I, if I, uh, if I didn't mention, you know, I am, you know, Hispanic. So having having that history and knowing that, you know, at the time it was it was basically what we know now as as Mexicans who were the first Vaqueros. I mean, they were Spanish Indians, but mm-hmm. um, and then the whole Joaquina uh uh thing. I don't know what you want to call it. The process of bringing a horse up um, from a colt starting them in the hackamore and then going up to the two rein, and then going up from that straight up into the bridle. Um, it was a way for you to honor your horse. It is a way for you to honor your horse and having the respect for the animals that I do. Um, it all just kind of falls in together. Yeah. Um, the gear is, uh, it's it's not just functional gear. There's style to it. There's uh, there's pride in the craftsmanship of the gear. Not to say that there's not pride in any type of gear, but it's got it's got a certain unique style. Um, and you can go from you know a California type uh, cowboy. We'll just say cowboy to A Great Basin buckaroo, and you can see there's different styles within that even in the type of gear they use. And, and, uh, it, it's all based on the location you're in. Um, you know, you're, you're doing different things with your horses. You're doing different things. You got to run your cattle a certain way because you're either, you know, on the coast or you're in the mountains or you're in the sagebrush. There's, there's just so much to it. in uh, the silver and the, uh, the, the the Wade saddles or the saddles with the big horns or the three B the three B saddles, mm-hmm. basically the the slick fork saddle, right? Yep. Yep. The, the slick fork saddle is, has always been the King in my eyes and, uh, all that goes along with it. So, um, you know, riding, riding in a, in a snapple bit with McCarty is the only way I really know. Um, instead of using split reins, always being attached to your horse with your get down rope or your lead rope, whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, So just wanting to be a part of that and uh, having had the respect for the gear, like I said, sitting there just drooling over Capriola catalogs growing up to being able to kind of jump into it and be part of it.
0: What I think is most fascinating with a lot of this in, in our conversation is that I mean, you talk about the rich history, and we're going to use the Vaquero or the California, right? Because that's where we're at uh, for the sake uh-huh. of conversation. But it's ap- the, the theory is applicable to any part of the world. And you talk about the respect for the gear. I think it's incredible that you you place the value in that, right? The history, the process. and And obviously, we always want to push the envelope, and we always want to be innovative in making things better, whether it be – how we work horses, how we work cattle, the gear that we use, but you always have to stay true to that foundational root, right? Of where it all started, where it all came from. And I think that's the the most fascinating thing that I've gained in our conversation, right? Is that it's such a balance of, I mean, there's huge value placed in the history. There's huge respect placed in the history, but in the same vein, you're trying to produce a product that, that hopefully will last a lifetime, you know? Yeah. It's a, it's a credible balance to find because most people just want to make money, right? And how do you make money? You simplify the process and you go to that uh, assembly line type production, but there's, there's more value in my opinion, and I'm the host, so I get to have that, right? (laughs) But in my opinion, there's, there's a lot more value in the history, the personality, the love that goes into the production of this equipment, because as you send every piece of leather good out, this isn't something that's just gonna hang on the wall, right? This is something that an individual could potentially make a livelihood on and feed a family on and could be a generational piece of equipment.
1: That's right. And you know, and I have customers from all walks of life. They're they're working cowboys, buckaroos, to you know, people that, you know, board their horse at a at a facility and they go out and they're just trying to better themselves and horsemanship and their hobbyists. Um to uh you know all over the world there's there's all kinds of different customers yeah and yeah. i and, and i'd be lying you said you know you're trying to sell them a piece of gear that lasts them a lifetime well yes i i kind of hope my shops don't last them a lifetime a lifetime because that's not really good for my business plan <laughs> i i do build them to last yes don't get me wrong yes but yes. Uh, yeah for sure
0: good stuff so let's let's go back i want to kind of develop a. Uh some of your experiences at the halter business, right? You talked about learning how to run a business and and we've talked about it a few times on the show is that most people in the Western world are really, really good at what they do, whether it be training horses or breeding, whatever their given discipline is, right? Raining, roping, uh, bell racing. But oftentimes we lack as a whole in the industry on the business side of things. What, what were some of those early valuable experiences that maybe you shared or learned at that halter company that, that carry you on to have the success that you've had for now 20 years?
1: Well, I mean, I think at the time when I was working there, I wasn't necessarily looking at it as learning how to run a business. I, I look back being a business owner now, trying to either trying to start up a business at the time when I was doing the, when I was first getting into this. I look back at my experience there at the halter company and see, oh. You know, you say, "Oh, that's why he did it this way," or "That's why he was doing this." And it's it's very it's simple stuff like recycling uh, cardboard boxes. To me, I always thought that was funny. Why Why does he keep on reusing the same boxes over and over again? Well, that costs money. And if you're trying to if you're trying to start out, yeah, you're not going to go out and buy brand new boxes to box your your orders up and ship them out. I mean, that's a pretty basic thing to learn, but, you know, light bulbs, you know, as you get older and you see things,
0: it all starts to make sense looking backwards,
1: right? Yeah. Light bulbs. Yeah. Light bulbs start going off in your head and you start realizing, oh, well, this is why you did this. And this is why you did this. And to have the attention to detail and to be as painfully particular as a person like uh, the man that runs Double Diamond Halter Company is it's necessary in business, especially a small business or sole proprietorship. You've got to know everything, start to finish in and out, upside down and backwards um, in order to, in order to have a chance of being successful. Yeah. yeah. And uh, as annoying as it was working for him later on, I understood why he was like that. Hmm. Mm-hmm. um and you say well how did you learn to run a business i still don't know how to run a business to be honest <laughs> i'm just i'm i'm learning every day and it's a it's fluid it's changing on a daily basis there's so many challenges you know it's challenging enough just to get up not for me anymore because i'm I'm pretty adept to it, but it's challenging enough to get up every morning and get out here and get to work because you don't have anybody that's, you're not accountable to anybody. You don't have a boss at the, a boss at the bank or a boss at the store sitting there waiting by the time clock, making sure you show up on time. Um, so, uh, it's, it's every day. It's every day learning, every day challenging, every day evolving. every day is a little different
0: yeah and that's the that's the beauty in all, all of it and i try to i try to preach that uh, as much as i can is it s- so often we as human beings place so much emphasis or priority on the goal right that's what matters but in retrospect if you really want to get good at whatever your craft is right the process is where you need to place your focus it's right. the journey. Stride for yep. stride. And that's what the value is because when it's all said and done, let's – I mean, we'll take a timed mile, for example. You run a timed mile and you finish that mile like, great, you hit your goal. But there's plenty of places in that timed mile where you're probably thinking, man, I should have pushed it a little bit further here. Man, I need to let up just a little bit more. And and all those small decisions result in whatever that, that finishing time is for that timed mile. And it's no different – uh, not than working a horse or running a business, right? I mean, you want, everybody wants to be successful. Everybody has money that they have to make to, to create a livelihood. But in the same vein, I mean, it's a bunch of stringing together a bunch of good decisions and trying to learn as much as you can from the bad ones.
1: Yep. That's exactly right.
0: So let's build, let's build up. You talked about that period of your life, right? You have a young baby, you have a, a relatively new business, and and you talk about the challenges that you faced uh, with the divorce. Maybe we can discuss the the personal side of it and the professional side of it, and then we'll get into kind of some of the growth and how you fought your way through it to find success.
1: Um, I have I have absolutely no problem talking about that stuff. I I hope that maybe something get somebody gets something out of it. Who's God forbid having to go through the same thing. The the divorce was devastating to me. Um I was pretty lost. Um the the thing that uh the thing that I I guess that I really tried to focus on was being a father first. If I if I didn't have that little girl, I don't know where I'd be. Because at that point, it wasn't about the business. It wasn't about anything else. It was about trying to keep the family unit together because it obviously wasn't something I wanted. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, if I didn't have that little girl, I, I, I wouldn't have had a purpose at that point. So I, I thank God for her. She's a blessing. And the struggle for, for me was basically not only personal heartbreak, but heartbreak for her. Because I really firmly believe that a child is better off with a two-parent household. Yes. And when when you, when you get married, when anybody gets married, they never intend on getting a divorce. That's, mm-hmm. not, the, that's mm-hmm. not the plan. But even more so, when you have a child, <laughs> you definitely don't intend on breaking yeah. up with your, child, your child's parent. Uh, you don't plan on having a divorce. You don't plan on separating you're seeing the happier you're, you're hoping for the happier ever after life. Right. So that was the challenge. And you want to talk about podcasts. The thing that helped me get through it was listening to Dr. Laura. No kidding. Yep.
0: Isn't it funny though, when you talk about this, uh, I mean, on a fundamental level, it seems relatively easy, right? Divorce in my opinion is caused cause there's an interruption in life balance, Right. Needs are not getting met on one side of the fence or the other. Yep. But it's, although it's very, very simple in concept, oftentimes we get lost, everybody gets lost in the weeds and there's always an interruption of life balance on, on many, many levels, you know, and
1: get complacent.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You start to place priority where it shouldn't, whether that be in your profession or you start taking things for granted, uh, or you don't show the appreciation i mean that's uh, one of my biggest struggles just is is work ethic like when it's time to work it's time to work and i will get very very narrow minded i'll be a, the 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 runaway freight train and and it's been hard Total for vision. me yeah it's Total been vision, hard for right? me in life to Kind of take that deep breath, right? Step back. Look at the big picture. Like, okay, I can dedicate myself to this, but I have all these other priorities that, I, that I'm obligated to as well. And I need to maintain some level of proficiency in those aspects of life. And uh, for me, it was small changes in perspective that I personally learned through working with horses. And that's what we try to convey on this show is that we have all fallen on our face. Anybody that says they haven't is a liar, flat out. But small changes in perspective, right? Small changes in your perspective that you learned with your specific divorce circumstance could have profound outcomes with somebody that's maybe battling anxiety. Uh, Somebody who has that horse that they can't get under control. Uh, Somebody who's, man, I should really take this chance in life with a new job opportunity, but I'm kind of scared, you know? And that's that's what we try to convey here is, you know, what was it for you that kind of helped right the ship you know you talk about the value of your daughter and, and giving you purpose and, yeah. and a willingness to fight through that process but at some point in that challenge there had to have been some sort of light bulb moment that that helped to change your perspective and maybe dr laura was that
1: yeah and, and i and i shouldn't say it was just dr laura i mean it, that was the biggest probably the big, single biggest um i guess therapy if you want to yeah. call it that yeah. of of the whole of the whole time. Um, Reading her books, listening to her, listening to her podcast or, or her show. She had call-ins, you know, people calling in with mm-hmm. some of the same issues. Understanding, um, because you know, when you get a divorce, you feel like—at least I did—I felt like a failure.
0: Oh yeah, oh yeah.
1: And, uh, and and understanding that other people have the same problems, understanding why it happened. Um, you know, accepting acceptance was the biggest thing for me. So hard was accepting this is this is the way it is. This is what it is and this is what we got to do. Um you know, of course my dad and my mom were really in my family in general was really supportive and helpful and uh, I I come from a divorced family and I certainly didn't want that for my daughter. Um reading all the statistics and doing all the studies and understanding what it's like to be a kid that has to go back and forth between his parents' house. I I didn't want any of that, but, um, that acceptance deal and and it takes a while. It took me a while. And then, um, you know, doing the whole thinking that I need to go out and get a girlfriend and date right away. I mean that none of that was, none of that was helpful. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Um, really uh, keeping things in perspective and being a dad was, is always and was always my number one um, uh, realizing I wasn't ready for doing anything else. And, uh, and then my, my current girlfriend, Kim, I mean, like I said, over nine years, whatever she came into my life and really helped me as well. She really helped me on the, on the tail end of that, acceptance process and getting over the whole divorce thing Mm -hmm. and then and then going through things and realizing that you're going to find yourself in situations that you never thought you'd be in and you were never prepared for and that goes for just about anything in life but uh, with a divorce you find yourself in all kinds of weird circumstances you know your your ex-wife gets a boyfriend and Your boyfriend, her boyfriend's hanging out with your daughter and, you know, all all this other stuff that you're never prepared for. You don't want, you don't like it, but uh, having to figure out a way to accept it, work through it.
0: No, it's, uh, it's tough. You know, as I sit here and listen to you describe it, because with a lot of this, right, so much of it's emotionally charged. Oh, yeah. And you want to... You want to react, but somehow you got to find a way to respond, right? And that response requires a lot of reflection and thought and placing in this specific circumstance, right? Placing your daughter's well-being ahead of probably some of the emotional responses that you thought would be more healthy options, but definitely not conducive to any of the outcome. Um, It's tough and... It's crazy how life will throw this stuff at you and you talk about not being prepared and I mean there's so many aspects of life that I think about that that are great. I mean I'm in places that I never dreamed I would ever be. But there is the contrary to that, right? That same phrase can apply to to negative outcomes and this is kind of why we get we get into the deeper conversation on this show is that I mean, there was a life lesson learned. There are many life lessons learned. and Oh, yeah. And hopefully, we as individuals can find more peace with ourselves, find more patience with ourselves, um, and have that understanding that, you know what, things aren't always going to go great, and we're not going to make the best decisions. And we are going to react emotionally. Yeah. Um, you got to expect some level of failure, if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. But – I don't know. It's tough, man. I I I couldn't even imagine being in your shoes and having to make those decisions. I mean, that's that circumstance alone is a lot on your plate. Let alone trying to make a business and qu- basically quit one industry and start another. Uh, it's just it's incredible to it's incredible to sit here and have this conversation with you when you're years down the road and you fought the fight and now you've looked back and now you have all this in- information and experience to to maybe help somebody else. And this, a lot of what we talk about, yes, we're using divorce for the sake of conversation, but it's applicable to so many other aspects of life.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I think I, I did what any other good dad would do Um, to be honest. But we all, we all go through it individually and we have our own way of going through it. I mean uh, one of the things I really was intense on when all this started going down and you talk about, how emotional it is. Um, I didn't have a, I would normally, I'm not a big drinker, but Mm -hmm. I would have beer. I would drink some beers, you know, Mm -hmm. now and then maybe have a whiskey every every once in a while. But when I was going through all of it, I didn't have a drop because I wanted to feel it all for what it was.
0: That's Um, impressive.
1: and and, and, And I did that again. My daughter giving me purpose I did that because I needed to be sober for her. I needed yeah. to be present.
0: Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yeah.
1: Um, not not that I wouldn't be anyway, but uh, when she wasn't with me, you know, I, I could have been spending my time sitting at the bar, you know, but definitely did not. And uh, I, think, I think that helped. Um, everybody has their own way of doing it. But uh, I will say, uh, looking back, I know – I was going to say I think, but I know I'm a better I'm a better person. I'm a better man because of it.
0: Because that's the biggest thing, look. right there, right? Is it? Yeah. That improvement sure. improvement was made, right? The experience was not in vain, and it's hard. Um, and we talked before the show a lot of a lot of what I do, or a lot of the driving force, right? Is kind of to help. Better support the law enforcement and, and military communities and their sacrifices that they made, and I think that's the biggest thing and turning point for for that community or those communities is just that: is it the person that you are coming out on the back end of anything, right? Whether it be contract deployment, a tour. Uh, law enforcement career uh, career working in the ER right you you're gonna ch- you will change you're going to be a different human being
1: uh, it, it is all growth yes it's all growth but it sure. did
0: not happen in vain right the sacrifices that you made physically psychologically relationships that were built relationships that were broken they are there is a positive impact that came out of it in some way. Oftentimes, we get so buried, though, in the stress, anxiety, and pressure of everything that we don't understand the big picture. We don't see
1: yeah, definitely the true benefit in the moment. or
0: impact, you know, yeah. right?
1: Definitely in the moment. You definitely don't understand that. Yeah. That's yeah. for sure. And, I, and I'm, a, I'm a big believer of everything happens for a reason. It does. It I does. really am.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: It it might suck. It might really suck at the time where you're going through it. But Yeah. Right. I am a believer of that.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about, let's kind of transition into the business side of things, right? And, and you growing the leather business at that same, at that same point in your life, right? It's the business is new. The internet business is new. You still have to focus on business amidst all the other things going on in your personal life. I want to talk about kind of how the business got its foundational start and then what you have grown into as far as products offered, products you specialize in, things of that sort.
1: Well, so in the beginning when I first started, I was basically buying and reselling tack. That's basically what I was doing. I had uh, a good contact in Double Diamond Halter Company. I had I had his products available through the website, um, halters, McCarty's, other things, Lariat Rope, stuff like that. Um, there was a couple other vendors here locally that I dealt with for leather goods such as you know, head stalls and breast collars and... Um, it, it was very small. It was very small time at the beginning. The only thing I basically made at the time was um, the Bozell hangers. That's the only thing I kind of made in, in, in the office. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't even call it a shop because it was basically a bedroom with a desk in it and a good internet connection. <laughs> um, so from there, I, I was just – I was – I was – I, I was – uh, what, what did I do at the very beginning? Oh, the very beginning, um, I was selling Manel Manel stirrups. I don't know if you with those, but they're they're a stirrup. They're really popular among uh, working cowboys and buckaroos. Uh, they're wider. They're metal bound. Mm-hmm. Uh, Manel Manel at the time Monel is a type of metal, but uh, most of the stirrups now are stainless steel covered, real shiny. You can mm-hmm. get them in Manel or or brass or copper. Anyway, so my other than the the, the Bozell hangers, I was I was lining those stirrups. So I'd get them in from Trina Weber, who I still do business with today. She she makes the stirrups, um, and you put a leather a leather liner in them because they're just wood wood bound interior, and you line them with leather and nail it in, glue it in, and put your little uh. There's a little piece of uh, I don't even know what you want to call it, but it goes over the. A, leather, a piece of leather that folds over the top.
0: Over the hanger, yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, put that in and, and ship it out. So I went from doing that to um, uh, we, uh, my, my ex-wife and I, Heather, um, decided to buy a place out here in Wilton, uh, a small 10-acre place that I was talking about, which I still live today, and build it. And... Uh, Upon building that, I built a shop and part of the shop at the time, the shop, the building itself is 24 by 36, but I sectioned off uh, a 10 foot section at the end of the shop and framed it all in for my, for the business. And that was going to become my leather shop. And one of the very first things I did was bought a sewing machine. And the reason I bought a sewing machine is because I thought I was going to start building head stalls. And because uh, I really wasn't happy with the quality of head stalls I was getting at the time, I knew there was better out there and I thought well the, the easiest way to not have to worry about the supply chain or the product that you get and control what you get is to do it yourself yeah so and I've always been a do-it-yourself kind of guy, so I start building them or trying to build them and I got decent at it, but I realized head stalls, for me, they're a pain in the ass. Um, there's just not. There's a lot of work in a head stall for the return you get, unless you're building them, say, two or three dozen at a time. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't selling two or three dozen, so <laughs> it just didn't it just didn't pencil out for me. So, um, I started. I looking. I started looking at. Uh, chinks and armitas, which I don't know if people know what chinks are, but chinks are like half shafts, mm-hmm. right? Um, and the one thing that I noticed was uh, the armitas weren't weren't available. You couldn't really find them. Um, there's a few places you can get them, but uh, they weren't marketed. Um, and uh, a lot of people didn't even know what armitas were. So, um, I, I've got some shaft leather and started making my own patterns and started messing around with Armita stuff. And ne- next thing you know, I'm building chinks and Armitas, um, almost exclusively, um, which is the major part of my business even still. Um, and I, I figured out quickly that I had the wrong type of sewing machine. I was kind of sold a bill of goods on a uh, eBay sewing machine. It was, it was, it was advertised as a leather machine, but it really wasn't. Wasn't. Yeah. Um, so I ended up getting another machine and that helped things out really. I mean, immensely because it was the right type of machine and I was able to do things a lot more consistently, stitch length, things like that on, on the shop leather. Um, and it, it really started the snowball from there. Um, I moved out here and, and built this place in 2003. You had, um, the Californios was a very popular thing that the roping event at the time was up in Red Bluff. Um, and we got a booth there and, uh, it was just, it was a phenomenal time for the business, for me personally. Um, just, uh, becoming, a internationally known, a gear maker, having a booth there, having the recognition. Um, And of course, at that time, you know, that 2000, was it 2005 to 2007? um, Time was just, it was madness, you know, economically, um, housing market, everything, people were just Everybody was in the spending mood, right?
0: I was going to say, everybody was spending money they didn't have.
1: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. So, um, uh, you know, I, I skipped over. Well, I didn't really skip over that. At the time, um, I was still searching for some for, for some products to sell. Um, and I met uh, John Willemsma. Who's become a really good friend of mine? He's a saddle maker. Um, and started uh, working with him on selling sad- some of his saddles or reselling some of his saddles, doing a wholesale thing with him. And starting to learn and develop contacts within our little circle of gear makers. You know, um, Todd Hansen, who's a bit and spur maker, um, Jeremiah Watt, Jeremiah and Colleen. Um, they're all well-established within this sort of genre of gear, I guess. Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. Um, Absolutely.
1: And, uh, I was searching for, um, still being a student of the horse. I was searching for, um, some help and some guidance there. And I ended up meeting, uh, Peter and Trina Campbell and, uh, it started out me selling his VHS tapes because he had, he had some really good uh, informative, really educational, good informative uh, videos out. And, uh, and uh, I ended up asking his wife. I, I, I met her on the phone. I asked, asked her, I said, well, what, it, what would it take to get Peter to come do a clinic here? And, uh, you know, 2006, I think it was. She told me what the stipulations were to get a client going. In 2006, I come home from work after working at the bank, and uh, his trailer and his horses are in the pen out back, and he's nowhere to be found. And about two hours later, <laughs> about two hours later, he calls me from the hotel and says, "Hey, uh, hey, partner, will you uh, throw my horses some hay and give them some water, and I'll see you in the morning." I'll be there in a bit. <laughs> I I never met him. I never met him personally, never even talked to him on the phone. And uh, he come out the next day, and we had a clinic, and him and I become really, really, really close friends. And uh, we did. And that that furthered my my horsemanship journey in a lot of ways. Not only did it further that, but it also helped me understand gear even better, have a better understanding of design. Longevity of gear and Peter and I even worked together on some things uh, with the Armidas and, and the shaft design. So um, having that relationship and that friendship was, it, it was really invaluable. Um, and Trina too. I mean, Trina helped me throughout the years as well. We, we helped each other. It was It was both ways. I was at the time I was doing website design and stuff and we did a lot of stuff together, work together in a lot of different ways. So,
0: and that's the greatest part about the, the Western industry, in my opinion, right. Is that just the networking and the willingness for so many people to, to come together and help the next man per se. Right. And, yeah, and th- sure. I think about it in my life. I mean, there's many mentors that I have today in the horse industry that gosh, three, five years ago, I never even thought would be attainable. Like, we don't run in the same circles. They're far more decorated in their professions and disciplines than I ever could dream of being. And uh, just through through the network, right, and meeting people and understanding goals and and friends recommending other friends and experts. And here you go, you have there's so many more people to lean on to help with this advice, you know, and to hear the network come together of of uh, you buckaroo style makers, whether it be mm-hmm. silver work or leather work, you know, bits, things of that sort. It's incredible to see the support, right? Rather than there is some level of competition, but you're not stepping on the next guy's throat just for the sake of success.
1: Well, when you say that uh, there is some level of conversation uh, competition, I, I have evolved in that respect as well because, you know, in the beginning when I'm struggling trying to get established, you know, I looked at Anybody else who built a pair of chinks or a pair of shafts or a pair of RMU's I mean, ask competition. And uh now being a little bit older and wiser, I guess, having a little bit more life experience, uh, that's not necessarily the way I should have looked at it. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's not really a healthy a healthy way to look at it. And uh it's kind of a to even go further to that point, I think it's kind of a starvation thinking where you know, if I'm doing good, everybody else. In order for me to be successful, um, I should be the only one that's making the sale on the custom shop, and nobody else should be. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That that doesn't work. Um, and I've had to evolve from that and mature from that way of thinking as well. Now, I I get people that, and I still do to this day, people that ask me if I'll sell them my patterns. Uh, no, I'm not going to sell you sell you my patterns. Yeah, but if you have questions or if you're trying to learn how to do this, give me a call and I'll walk you through it as much as I can or as best I can over the phone. Give yeah. me some advice. Yeah, Hopefully get you going in the right direction. Explain what I've gone through to get there. I'm, I'm not an expert. I'm learning every day. Um, but I, I could kind of tell you from my own personal experience, what I've, you know, what I've done to get to where I'm at. Um, I'm still learning just, just like everybody else. But, uh, yeah. And, and yeah, so I, I don't know how I got off on that. That was a competition thing.
0: No, it's true. And I, and I think about it too. I mean, so much of my success early on was driven by a fear of failing, right? I was so scared right. of making a mistake that I just worked that much harder when in fact, you know, as I've gotten older and matured in the same vein, quote unquote failure, is not negative right it's a chance to find a hole in your game and i often talk to people about I, i use the phrase run your own race instead of worrying about the competition and what they're doing and whether it's ethical and how they're trying to you know get a corner on the market or undersell you whatever it may be all those man hours spent worrying are man hours that you could spend Bettering your business, bettering your product, bettering your model, whatever, maybe bettering your horsemanship, uh, how well you do with Water, your life or your children. Watering your yeah, own grass. Exactly, you know, exactly. Like,
1: watering your own grass. Let
0: yep. them do their thing. But if you're truly yep. a master at it, uh, if you're truly an expert in it, who cares who you compete against? Yeah. Show up. You show up on game day and you do your job. And you know what? You're going to get beat. That's life. Yep but you learn you're that much better for the next rep, the next round, the next competition, whatever it may be. Lick your wounds if, if you get your tail whooped, but you move on and you, and you do better and produce a better human being, a better horse, a better business, whatever.
1: Yeah. I mean, and to go back to your, to your point about the, about the community and people willing to help no matter how big or small or whether they have huge name recognition or not. Um, you know, if 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 I, if I wasn't willing to do that, if I was still of that starvation thinking, um, where would I be? Uh, if all the people that had helped me along the way had that same attitude,
0: that's true. It, that's a great point. So it,
1: it really, it it really uh, it comes full circle in that way. I mean, I think as you get older, you mature, you have more life experience, you become wiser, you look at things a little differently just like Peter used to say, be careful what your opinion is today because, <laughs> because tomorrow, yes, right. Yes. You because tomorrow with knowledge, <laughs> yeah. With knowledge tomorrow, your opinion may change. Yeah. So, um, there's a lot of that. Yeah. There's, a, there's, there's so much of that, but, uh, so, I mean, moving on to California's and, uh, internet's booming. People are buying like crazy, um, I think a lot of the the, the big tax stores and stuff like uh, National Rope Supply and stuff like that still didn't really have an internet presence. It was all catalog sales.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there we we were doing really well. I was doing really well. California was was a big major part of that, of course. But having an internet presence and being able to get the information out to the masses and educate them on, um. Not only educate them, I, I shouldn't even say educate them, make available to them this type of gear. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because the people the people that were educating them, it certainly wasn't me. It was people like Peter Campbell, Ray Hunt, Buck Branneman, Brian Newbert, Joe Walters, Bill Dorrance, Tom Dorrance. Those were the people that were educating the masses on not just the horsemanship, the horsemanship was a major part of it, but yeah. the gear. Yeah. The gear, if it weren't for those folks, I, I wouldn't nearly be any, any type of success Yeah, because they were the people that brought this type of gear to the forefront. There is a huge history of the Californios and the Vaquero and everything else. And that's where the gear was derived from. But the people that made it more known and more popular were, were those clinicians, right?
0: So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and every one of them has got a spinoff of some kind. There's a bunch of disciples of those folks and they're all still using it. They're all still using this type of gear. And, and, uh, there's still people I get, I still, I, I used to get a lot more phone calls. Now the phone doesn't bring you, you get a text or an email, but at the time, you know, there was people that were, they were just finding out about the whole Vock thing and the California thing. And, and, uh, the bridal bit process and, and there's people that were just and the Californios was part of it. Just the excitement. It was like this whole folklore culture had its own following.
0: Yeah, it was a rediscovered part of history.
1: Yeah. And uh all those folks are responsible for it. Um, you know, Gwen Turnbull, Dave Weaver, the folks that ran the Californios, they're all responsible for that there was a huge surge in the popularity of this type of gear Mm -hmm. and uh it it continues definitely Mm -hmm.
0: continues it's cool to see the uh just the network of support all come together right with with that industry right the buckaroo gear the california style horsemanship and you know everybody kind of supporting everybody else from the horsemanship side the tax side of things running businesses in general and um it's awesome to see that. I mean, to this day, right? And we've mentioned it before. In your twentieth year, you still are running a sustainable business founded in so much of Western history.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I never, I never really looked about looked at it like that. But yeah, that's right. That's true.
0: Yeah, yeah. So as we wrap every episode. I want to give you first the chance to, to tell listeners how they can reach out to you, how they can find you and your equipment. Um, So if we can, let's go through websites and social media real quick, and then we'll wrap with our, our final question uh, around freedom.
1: So first and foremost, of course, the website is buckaroogear.com or lostbuckaroo.com. They both go to the same website and then uh, Facebook you can just look up, uh, buckaroo gear or at buckaroo gear. It's, it's facebook.com forward slash. Yeah. Facebook.com forward slash buckaroo gear. And then Instagram, um, which I post, I try to post to just about daily. Uh, I generally take, uh, at least take Sunday off, but I'm trying to post something up to, to Instagram daily. Um, Instagram's at buck, buckaroo Gear as well.
0: So as at the end of every show, obviously we ask a question uh, surrounding freedom and in your personal and professional experience, right? What is one of the more profound challenges that you faced? What was the lesson learned from it? And what advice would you give to somebody who may be in a similar season of life?
1: Well, maybe, maybe I'll take it, maybe I'll take it on a, on a different, uh, angle. Um, for me, uh, my freedom is the, the ability to create. So that would be, uh, that would be anything, Mm -hmm. whether you're creating a website, whether you're building a, a shop, whether you're installing a sprinkler system, whether you're, building a race car, uh, I guess, I guess one of the biggest challenges and one of the things that I've always grown up with as a personal wouldn't be a vendetta, a a personal goal would be that I never wanted to have to depend on anybody to do something or fix something for me. Um, in other words, I never wanted to have to pay somebody to do it. Yeah. So I think in a lot of ways what holds people back is uh, is uh, self-doubt and not being willing to screw up, right?
0: Amen. I've, or been have, there. Or have, I've been there. Or
1: however you want to look at it, whether yeah. it's a screw up or not. Yeah. You call it a failure, I call it a screw up, whatever you want to call it, yeah. right? We have to be willing to fail in order to learn and progress. We mm-hmm. have to be willing to screw something up in order to fix it because you don't learn from the screwing up part. You learn from the fixing part.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well,
1: maybe, maybe you learn a little from both, but more so you <laughs> screwing learn. Screwing
0: just opens up the door.
1: <laughs> right. Maybe Maybe you learn more so from the fixing part, and then guess what comes with that part? Confidence.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love it.
1: Yeah, and I, I think I think part of the problem with, with people these days is is uh or younger generations is they've never built anything. Yeah. You know? Go out yeah. and build something. Yeah. Go out whether it's a whether it's a website, whether it's a like I said, whether it's a shed, whether it's a workbench, build something with your hands or or with your brain and challenge yourself. I love it.
0: It's all good I stuff. You,
1: I think you you get a bunch of self fulfillment and a bunch of uh, what do you call it? Uh, Confidence.
0: Yeah, there's so many life lessons. It's more than just a shed, right? It's, and it goes. It all Self-esteem. circles back to the process, right? The process is what right. what provides the value. But I'll tell you what, right. Carlos. It's been a uh, awesome hour sitting down, speaking with you, and talking about Buckaroo Gear, and just talking life a little bit, you know. And and hopefully, being that you're not too far from me, I'm gonna try to get up your way. Uh, maybe once all these funny little COVID restrictions quit, and uh, check the shop out, and maybe we'll just talk life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a bunch of stuff here. It's not just a leather shop. I also do. I've been dabbling in me- metal work.
0: Oh, cool. Good stuff. All right, my friend. Well, you have a good rest of the day, and we'll talk to you down the road.
1: All right. Thank you very much.
0: Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, thanks for riding along with another episode of Let Freedom Rain podcast and being part of our Freedom family. If you want to provide greater support of this show, visit patreon.com forward slash Let Freedom Reign podcast. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Let Freedom Reign podcast. And rain is spelled R-E-I-N. There you can provide a donation, and it costs less than the fancy cup of coffee you're probably holding, to help us produce free weekly content. For collaborations, to book us as a guest for your next event, or to make guest recommendations, email us at info.lfrpodcast at gmail.com. For the most up-to-date information on Let Freedom Reign, visit our Facebook and Instagram page at Let Freedom Reign Podcast. Additionally, you can find us on Twitter at Let Reign underscore. We cannot thank you enough for being our most loyal listeners, and we'll see you on the next one.